This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Hi everyone and welcome to World to Win. Before we start, I just want to remind everyone to first of all like and also share and subscribe to our channel as well. And also we're available in podcast form if you don't want to watch a full YouTube video on every possible podcast platform. So check that out as well and subscribe on these platforms as well. But before we go into the episode, I want to say hi to my co-host, Toya. How are you doing, Toya? Hey, Yara. How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, getting uh, really hectic here with uh, things to do and, uh, you know, getting, uh, get, getting out uh, again. So really exciting times. How about how is it uh, around there? Same. Getting hot. And uh, I'm glad we're kind of taking it back a little bit with a theoretical episode, as we like to call it today. Yeah, I know we both really enjoy these ones. And I'm also like, it, it's one of these things, you know, every time we record an episode like that, I feel like I'm becoming a better Marxist. So it's always good to have those. Well, yeah, I'm not gonna lie, I have a little anxiety because I had to read this book in college. Um, and I got an F on the exam. And so my Marxist professor allowed me to retake it. And I got a D. So I'm I'm very excited for this episode because, you know, uh, I can redeem myself in the eyes of Dr. Allen at Framingham State. Hopefully our guest here can can help us do that today. Yeah, and I think because it's such, we haven't even said what we're talking about today. But We're building it up, Yara. We're building it up. I mean, everyone has to already know what we're talking about because I think if there's one Marxist text that we learn in university or in college, it's this one. It's the Communist Manifesto. And, you know, we're in a show called World to Win. This is actually the quote that ends the manifesto. So it's, it's actually really interesting that we haven't yet had an episode about this. But I think this is, again, a really good opportunity for both, like, you know, the, the most advanced, experienced Marxists who've read this text over and over and over again. And college students or university students who have never read it and now are, like, getting into the ideas of Marxism through this text to kind of understand its relevance for today and not just, you know, what we get taught in school. Absolutely. And how we can apply it. That's that's the, that's the most important part. I think that we actually miss when we're studying in school is how we can apply the lessons of this book to today's, um, you know, class struggle. Yeah, I know. And, you know, like it's a book that was written by Marx and by Engels in 1848. <laughs> like it was published in 1848. So obviously a lot has changed since then, but it's still relevant today. And it still is the basis of our movement and it's still an inspiration for workers and revolutionaries around the world. Well, and there's so much criticism about it as well, um, especially with these ideas of socialism and Marxism being very relevant to young people today. Um, you know, people are looking for answers, but there is a lot of criticism of this text. So I'm curious to hear, um, you know, what our guests think of that. But Yara, who do we have on the show with us today? Yeah, so first of all, we've got Sebastian from our section in Austria. So hi, Sebastian. How are you doing? I'm really interested to hear what's up in Austria right now. Um, hi, Yara. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm a member of the Socialist Left Party um, in Austria. Um, right now we are building uh, for our annual summer camp, which will um, take place. Of course, uh, COVID safe. So if you still need some summer plans, um, um, you want to go, come to the south of Austria in a beautiful mountainside and lakes. 
um, and join international socialists from all over the world in discussing and planning the revolution, uh, you should come to Austria in the last week of August. That sounds amazing and I'm sure we'll also link how to register for this event in the description so check it out if uh, you are looking for an idyllic uh, kind of uh, break with also of, with socialists from around the world but also we also have Becky from England, Wales and Scotland so how are you doing Becky? What have you been up to? Hey Yara, um, it's good to be back on the show. Um, one of the main things that's been exciting here is that um, currently public sector workers are balloting for strike action over pay. So we have NHS workers that have just been offered a 3% pay rise, which is actually a pay cut, and local government workers that have been offered 1.5%. So we could be looking at coordinated strike action across the public sector in the autumn, and that will be exactly 10 years since we saw a 3 million strong public sector general strike back in 2011. So that's quite exciting for us here. That's great. I mean, obviously not the, uh, the, the these kind of, um, the, these pay rises, pay cuts are not great, but it's great to see that workers are, you know, preparing for action. And I think this kind of leads us really well into this discussion about the Communist Manifesto because I feel like so many people in this period that's definitely, you know, going to bring more and more of these kind of worker struggles are going to pick up the, a copy of this book and try to understand the nature of the system through this book. So I want to start by asking the first question. Um, so I think we, we talked a little bit about already about the first part of this book, which is uh, bourgeois and proletarians. And it's kind of like a short history of capitalism. And it kind of talks about what makes it so different to the economic systems that came before it, even though they obviously still share uh, a lot in common. And Marx and Engels spend so much time talking about uh, capitalism and its nature, but also specifically about the revolutionary role that the bourgeois uh, the bourgeoisie uh, have played uh, at the beginning of the system. So what does that mean? What does that actually mean, Sebastian, when, when we say that the bourgeoisie played a revolutionary role? Does that mean that we all need to join up with the bourgeoisie in order to uh, create a socialist revolution? Yeah, I'll just go ahead and ask my boss uh, to join the revolution. No, um, I think what uh, who best described uh, what Marx and Engels did uh, in this first part of the Communist Manifesto was the Italian Marxist Antonio Labriola, who um, said in a text about the manifesto, never was a funeral oration so magnificent. Um, and I think this captures the, uh, the attitude <laughs> Uh, that Marx and Engels have towards uh, the bourgeoisie in the Communist Manifesto very well. Um, like you said, uh, the, the first chapter basically gives an overview over uh, the history of capitalism and the history of the, of, of the bourgeoisie. Um, the bourgeoisie emerged out of the colonial expansion of the European feudal powers. Um, that meant trade became more important and so did the merchants. So already in the 15th and 16th century, uh, bourgeois were already among the richest people um, in, in Europe. Now for the feudals, wealth was something to be hoarded or showcased or simply enjoyed. Um, and for example, like the kings wanted spices from the colonies for, for their banquets. Um, so 
basically what you, you could say that their whole rule was based on the appropriation of use value. You know, wealth was something to, to be used. Um, the borders of the feudal economy were like the borders of their buffet tables. Now for the bourgeois, the people who sold uh, uh, the, uh, these goods, these robbed goods, um, to, to the, the aristocracy, um, these goods meant something completely different. They wouldn't immediately consume them. Uh, they didn't acquire them for their personal use, but to sell them. So um, the original position of the bourgeois in the feudal economy as a trader already shows that for the bourgeois it's about exchange value, about like making money with stuff and not you know using it for something good or, or, or bad. Um, so um, the rise of the bourgeoisie in the wake of colonial expansion also meant increased development of science and industry because while the power of the feudal lords was based on exploitation of use value, that meant they only needed to develop the productive forces of society, um, science, etc., um, only to the extent that their stomachs would need it or, uh, or allow it. Um, on the contrary, the bourgeois power, which was based on exchange value of buying and selling ever more things, needed to constantly expand their operations and their realm of power. So soon the feudal economy became too narrow for the bourgeois and they had to create new economic foundations, a mode of production that fitted the bourgeois mode of circulation. Um, this is what Marx and Engels also write in the first uh, part of the manifesto where they say um, it, it, the bourgeoisie, compels all nations on pain of extinction to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce what it calls civilization, also interesting cho choice of words, into their midst. That means to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, it creates a world after its own image. So that is in a way what the manifesto praises as the like revolutionary role of the bourgeoisie because it unleashed the forces of production, connected the whole planet and by that created the conditions for a global uh, classless society of abundance. Um, but at the same time, I think we should be careful um, not to think of the history of the bourgeoisie like as this linear line where we can say, you know, until that point it was progressive and at that time uh, it, became, uh, uh, it became reactionary. At the same time, uh, actually, Marx and Engels were very clear that uh, they were not cheerleading the bourgeoisie in this, in, in this process, but actually uh, in the manifesto and in many, many other uh, of their writings, they uh, made clear that every so-called progress the bourgeoisie made was also an act um, of oppression. For example, the colonial expansion, uh, which connected the world, uh, is also the history of genocide and slavery, of course. Uh, the so-called primitive accumulation, um, the process in which former peasants and other feudal serfs turned into proletarians, was a brutal process of expropriation and incarceration. Um, the destruction of the house industry laid the base for the modern form of, um, of women's oppression, um, um, or it changed the form of, of, of women's oppression. So it's not our job as Marxists to like defend these atrocities in the name of progress, um, but uh, we should keep in mind that, um, as Walter Benjamin once said, there's never been 
a document of culture which was not simul simultaneously one of barbarism. And also Marx and Engels were very uh, clear about this even when they praised the so-called revolutionary and um, progressive role of the, uh, of the bourgeoisie. Thanks so much, Sebastian. Yeah, I think it's really important that we talk about, um, you know, not just uh, uh, when we're talking about capitalism, not just the, the the bad things about capitalism, which is important that we're fighting for, but we do need to um, acknowledge progress, um, which is something that's kind of, uh, I think, hard to do when we're talking about the need to change for society. And I think this text um, is a good starting point to be able to um, historically explain the processes that we've lived through. Um, but, uh, you know, Marx and Engels wrote this book, as Yara mentioned in the beginning, a very long time ago, but about a place in the world um, that was experiencing an, an economic system that hadn't yet, um, you know, uh, traveled around the entire globe. You know, um, in Europe, the capitalism um, was, you know, thriving, if that's how, how we want to describe it. But in other parts of the world, in the underdeveloped world, um, you know, the economic systems were very different. Um, so does that, you know, affect the way um, that we can use this text? And, um, you know, how can we explain that considering that Marx was writing about a place and time that uh, was very different than the rest of the world? First, I think it's, um, I think it's true. Um to say that Marx and Engels focused on uh, European capitalism, which they saw as capitalism in its most pure form, where it was also possible for them to um, analyze the uh, development and the contradictions of, of, of capitalism in the most clear um, fashion. Um, at the other, uh, on the other side, if you look at uh, Marx's writings, uh, for example, on slavery, you can really see how Marx and Engels already also understood that capitalism also thrives on uh, modes of oppression that came before it and somehow integrated it um, into, uh, into this new form uh, of domination. I mean, already the, the French revolutionary bourgeois to a large extent depended on, uh, on colonialism um, in, in Haiti, for example, um, and were not too pleased with the uh, so-called Black Jacobins and the, and the Hay, uh, revolution in Haiti. Um, so I think in, in that sense, um, Marxists always um, already um, thought about, analyzed and, uh, and also fought, um, you know, battles um, outside of, you know, the, the epicenters of, of capitalism. On the other hand, um, many things that Marx and Engels analyzed for 19th century European capitalism became features of global capitalism that now rules, you know, the whole world um, as, as we know it. Um, for example, um, already in the Communist Manifesto, they talk about uh, crises of overproduction. Um, so whereas in former um, economic um, systems, a crisis would appear because you know there was too little of something, uh, you know, a shortage of corn, etc. And in capitalism, crises appear absurdly um, because there's too much of something and and it can't be sold uh, for for a profit. It's not that you know um, people have too much under capitalism; the big majority does not. But the fact that um, things can't be sold for a profit suddenly 
becomes uh, a factor for a crisis under capitalism. Just think of how many thousands of tons of food are deliberately destroyed under capitalism while millions starve just to keep like prices um, stable. But on the, um, what I also find even more astonishing about their analysis of capitalism and how it, it's actually even more relevant today than probably uh, at their time is that already in 1848 they write ha uh, about how in every class society but also already under capitalism um, a mode of production, you know, a, a, a system of society like capitalism does not all only develop productive forces, bring them forward, but also halts their, um, their development and even turns them uh, into, uh, into destructive um, forces. I mean, Marx and Engels um, write uh, in 1848, uh, <laughs> always remember that, um, for many a decade past, the history of industry and commerce is but the history of revolt of modern productive forces against modern conditions of production, against the property relations that are the conditions for the existence of the bourgeois and of its rule. So th today, this couldn't be more uh, uh, true. I think in every single ch challenge society faces today, the capitalist system is the main obstacle. If you think about patents, a bourgeois in invention, if there ever was one, which massively slowed down the COVID vaccine rollout and through that killed hundreds and thousands of people. Um, think of restrictions that are put on the internet, a force of production, which could pot potentially give free information, education and culture to every single human being. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And it's not just that these potentials are wasted, which Marx and Engels already analyzed in 1848, but also how uh, these potentials are used in a destructive um, way. Already in 1848, in the German ideology, uh, Marx and Engels say that under capitalism, the uh, productive forces become, for the majority, destructive forces. Um, and I think it's safe to say that today's capitalism is absolutely dominated by these destructive forces. We don't use drones to make our lives easier, but to kill each other. Um, think of whole branches of industry that fight against environmental regulations because their profits uh, would suffer from a, from a healthy climate. I think um, capitalism today is even more, by far more destructive than it was in the, in the 19th century, but it's kind of amazing how Marx and Engels already said that in 1848 uh, capitalism um, is, is absolutely destructive at a time when it hadn't even developed to the extent that we know it today. Sebastian, I loved some of those examples that you gave of how you can take a book from 1848, and I won't forget it, Sebastian, you've said the date a couple times, and really apply it to today. I think the environment is, a, is an actual great example. Um, and what you were saying about patents and, um, you know, how... Patents are one of the reasons that the entire world isn't vaccinated as soon as we um, come up with a vaccine. So it's it's uh, it's amazing to see how these lessons still apply because it's about the economic system itself. It's not just about the way of life um, in Europe at the time that the, the book was written, but it, it's about the economic system. Um, and, you know, I've heard, especially now, uh, 
you know, within the Black Lives Matter movement, even within the vi- environmental movement, so many young people are 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 questioning capitalism and looking for socialism um, as a solution to the problems. But when they when they look and research socialism, they see books like Karl, you know, uh, the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. They see that he was a white man um, in the 1800s, um, and he references Europe because that's where he was living. Um, and many people feel that it doesn't apply to them today. It doesn't apply to their situation today. But I think you did a really good job of explaining how uh, he's describing the economic processes, and that's how we can relate um, to the words that he's saying. Um, and you know. One of the main criticisms of Karl Marx is that he had no perspectives on on black people. He had no perspectives on slavery, but he absolutely did. Um, You know, he wrote correspondence with uh, Abraham Lincoln, congratulating him for freeing the slaves even, um, which we talk about often. But he wrote for American newspapers talking about the situation of um, black Americans in the U.S. And so. Uh, I think, you know, we don't have time to get into everything that Karl Marx, Marx wrote about, but he uh, he did write extensively about many different peoples of the world. Um, but I want to go to Becky. Um, we've heard from Sebastian a little bit, so I want to transition. Um, and Becky, you know, Marx uh, has many uh, good one-liners in this book, and I'm curious to hear what other people who are watching the show, what are your favorite um, quotes from the Communist Manifesto, or even just your favorite Karl Marx quotes. I'm I'm curious. Put them in the comments. Let us know what you think. Um, but one famous one, Becky, that he said um, was that the bourgeois creates its own grave diggers. Um, so can you talk about how the the Communist Manifesto um, describes the the proletariat um, better? Let's let's make it more more modern. The working class um, and what makes these things distinct. Yeah, so the first thing I think is that in the Communist Manifesto, he, uh, Marx and Engels start off by talking about how the development of capitalist society has led to an increasing polarisation of classes into two hostile camps. So you have the working class, the proletariat, and the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class. And it describes the, the working class as being a class of labourers who live only so long as they find work. So people who have to work in order to live, who must sell themselves, are a commodity. And under capitalism, workers are just appendages to their machines. They're paid enough to barely live, but not the, the full value of what they actually produce. And workers are paid in wages, in money, which they then have to give back to the capitalist class in rent, by going to the shops, by paying back loans, or they reference like pawnbrokers. Um, and so those are some of like the negative things about what capitalism does to the working class. But the quote about creating the, their own grave diggers refers to the um, capitalism creates big workplaces. It creates big factories where a huge number of people are brought together to work and live alongside each other in the same conditions, making it possible to build a united and revolutionary class. So the manifesto says that for the working class, there is no distinction based on age or gender, that we're all just instruments of labour and we're more or less expensive based on our age or our gender or where we may live um, in, in the world. And it talks about 
what starts off as like collisions between individual workers and bosses, um, maybe over your wages or your working conditions, they start to become more collective collisions. So the experience of the working class under capitalism, this like vast number of people that are all, all experiencing the same thing, that pushes them to organize collectively into trade unions and to parties. So the numbers of the working class grow as capitalism develops and more and more layers of the population sink into the proletariat, the manifesto says. So people's conditions get worse as the control of the economy falls into fewer and fewer hands. But the one of the most important things, I think, about the working class that's kind of set out in the manifesto is that the proletariat is the only revolutionary class under capitalism. It's also the first revolutionary class in history, which is a movement of the majority in the interests of the majority. And finally, the capitalist class is completely reliant on the working class to reduce the wealth, to fight their wars, and I think that we see in this the working class's power that we can see that is able to bring production and society as a whole to a halt, but also in being able to organise as a class for itself, it can fight to take political power and run society democratically in the interests um, of all. And that is also what's being put forward in the Communist Manifesto, not just kind of analysing what the working class is under capitalism, but what it would be under socialism and the power that it has. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we talk about kind of the proletariat and when we talk about kind of like the proletariat in 1848, we think about this very, you know, grim image of these very dark factories and the horrible conditions that uh, the working class were living under at the time. But a lot has changed since then. And I think one of the main things is that nobody in 1848 could kind of foresee how much bigger the working class is going to be. Um, like, like it's, it's massive now. It's massive to a degree that wasn't even comprehensible at the time. And but it's not just much bigger and it doesn't only kind of hold more and more of the population because, you know, there's always this kind of, uh, I think, kind of bourgeois propaganda that we hear today about how the, the working class is tiny and now everyone's middle class. And if we take this definition of what the working class is, like, like, like you explain, we see that most people are working class today, like by far most people. If we look at the people who don't own the means of production and have to sell their labor. I don't know many people who don't fall within this category. So, but by the same time, we do see a lot more kind of stratification within the working class. And obviously that image of the factory worker who's being ground uh, and ground to the, to the ground um, until, you know, like for, for, for hours and hours and hours this image obviously still exists today, especially in the uh, undeveloped world, but it's less common to what we perceive as the working class now, especially in the in the yeah, kind of like advanced capitalist world, but also in many other places. So 
Can you explain how the working class has developed and do we still think that the manifesto applies even to this new layer of the, like the, the new working class of today? Yeah, I think that um, when you and Toya were speaking at the beginning about kind of learning about this in university, I think that's one of the main messages that they tried to push is that like the Communist Manifesto is like outdated now because these things don't apply and that the working class isn't the same as it was in 1848. And I think that in some countries, the working class, in the sense of what jobs people do, it does look very different. So like, for example, in Britain, no one works in a mine anymore. And that's mainly because they were closed. <laughs> and uh, many other industrial workplaces no longer exist because they were moved to other parts of the world where the capitalists were looking for cheaper um, labour. But as you say, many countries, in many countries, some of these horrendous conditions still exist. So there's miners, you know, all over the world in countries like South Africa that are working in very dangerous conditions. We have like the modern kind of equivalent of, you know, some of the factories that existed in Britain and Germany and like some of the sweatshops in Myanmar and other countries. Um, and we can say that some things have improved, like child labour doesn't exist in many countries. People may generally work fewer hours than they did in the 1800s, although probably not by a lot. And there may be more health and safety measures in place, but all of these things have been won by the working class. And there's still many basic things that workers are fighting for internationally, the right to join a trade union. Um, we've seen under COVID um, workers having to fight for PPE and the right to work in a safe environment. So I would say that basically not a lot has changed. Um, workers in some countries may feel that they're not working class because they work in a secure, well-paid job. Their living conditions are significantly better than a miner in the 1800s. But I would agree that it's capitalist propaganda, <laughs> that this idea that the working class no longer um, exists. And uh, I wanted to give a couple of quotes from the Communist Manifesto, which I think are incredibly relevant. Um, to today. Uh, one is, um, as the repulsiveness of work increases, the wage decreases. And I think that's completely true of some of the most lowest paid workers that we've seen in the last year who are suddenly deemed essential by the system, but work in some of the worst conditions with the lowest uh, pay. And also another quote, in proportion as the use of machinery and division of labour increases, in the same proportion, the burden of toil also increases, whether by prolongation of the working hours, increase of the work exacted in a given time, or by increased speed of machinery. And I think we can see this with like the big developments that have taken place in technology since 1848 that those haven't been used to make the lives of working class people easier. Um, if anything, things have got harder in the in the workplace, the levels of kind of monitoring and so on that goes on in, in many uh, in many workplaces. But I think that the most important point for Marxists is uh, what you were saying, Yara, about how the working class has grown. 
that that's grown numerically. Um, you know, it's a majority in every country, but it's also grown in strength and power in that time. And so if anything, like the points that Marx and Engels are making in the manifesto are even more relevant and even more important to 21st century capitalism. Thank you, Becky. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also think that, like, you know, even though there was definitely improvement in the conditions of uh, the working class, if we're looking at it on an average since 18, uh, 1848, we're still seeing so many workers in the un underdeveloped world in very similar situations that uh, were in the 19th century. But also, you know, this emergence of the gig economy, I think, all really shows how capitalism will like try as much as it can to take away all of the rights that were won um, within the boundaries of the system and kind of push people to those kind of like worst conditions that they can um, and like present it as this new, uh, you know, modernized way of working. You can choose your hours, but in fact, we want, we know what actually happens. It's poverty wages with no actual, uh, you know, uh, guarantees and no employment rights that were won with the like sweat and blood of workers throughout the years. And I think that kind of proves in many ways the, the, the claims in the Communist Manifesto because it shows that under capitalism, the bourgeoisie is going to do whatever it can and capitalism is going to do whatever it can, can to maintain it. And in order to maintain it, it has to continue to hoard uh, to hoard wealth and it has to continue in order to do that to grind down um, the, the the conditions of workers and to pay them less and less and less and they would do it in very creative ways but uh, that is why the working class has to be united and I think that the point about kind of like the, the how the, the bourgeoisie creates his own grave diggers I think the bourgeoisie is, are, are trying to kind of separate workers now as much as they can and it's our job to kind of organized workers but at the same time we are seeing a lot more people calling themselves socialists calling themselves communists uh, whether that like it's through worker struggles or just you know the the play like the the, the good old social democrats uh, that we're hearing about and actually in the manifesto Marx and Engels discuss very extensively the different kind of types of socialism, types of communism that existed at the time. And they, like a lot of them don't really exist today, but they do have this big section about something that I think is still very obvious today, this bourgeois socialism. And I think we see it a lot, you know, the, the, the kind of, the, the parts of the bourgeoisie who are trying to help the working class in, uh, uh, at, at least the way that they present themselves. And I think we see it a lot in kind of like, uh, the form of, for example, NGOs um, or kind of these capitalist socialist uh, uh, parties that still want to keep us within the system but improve the situation of workers. And of course, we want to improve the situation of workers, but we also have to kind of talk about how we liberate workers and not just improve the situations within a system that is built on our exploitation and oppression. But... I think what's interesting about the Communist Manifesto is that it very clearly defines what is meant by communism. So I was wondering, Sebastian, can you tell us what is communism according to Marx and Engels? 
I will try to. Um, first, I think, or maybe the, the best way to approach like their understanding of communism is uh, maybe just quickly going through their criticism um, of these different um, types of socialism that were around at their time. Um, and I think in some ways or, you know, uh, in, uh, are, are still around um, uh, today or even like re-emerge um, today. Um, the first um, like trend of socialism they criticize is what they call reactionary um, socialism. These are, you know, by that they mean people who don't want to go beyond capitalism but kind of like behind it. Um, these, this reactionary socialism romanticizes um, pre-capitalist uh, societies like the European Middle Ages um, and also uh, this reactionary socialism was pushed mostly by petit bourgeois uh, thinkers who only criticized those aspects of capitalism that um, undermined their own standing as uh, property owners. Um, so, as the Trotskyist uh, Abraham Leon uh, later put it, they wanted to be anti-capitalist uh, without, you know, stopping to be capitalist. And this ideology is, of course, uh, a recipe for, for disaster. Um, it was no small factor uh, in, the, uh, in the rise of fascist ideology um, with uh, the Nazis, the national um, socialists, who also, um, uh, of course, were not socialists but, but fascists who killed uh, um, Abraham Leon in Auschwitz and um, I think Marx and Engels criticism of this reactionary socialism is extremely re relevant today if we consider far-right groups who pose as anti-capitalist or perhaps even more dangerous right now the rise of conspiracy theories who claim to be like against the system but in the end turn out to be just anti-semitic uh, uh, bullshit. Now the second uh, trend that they criticize is what they call bourgeois socialism, which uh, you, uh, Yara, already <laughs> summed up pretty, uh, pretty well. This idea that you know you can reform capitalism to become you know a bit more humane, to have like uh, a human face. I think, uh, like you said, this applies to a lot of the work, you know, the, the well-meant uh, work of of uh, activists in in NGOs. But of course, it also applies to the whole social democratic uh, tradition and, and new reformist uh, parties and forces um, today, like Die Linke in, in Germany or the, the leadership of, of DSA in the US, figures like uh, Jeremy Corbyn um, in the UK, um, where you know, their, their political strategy is limited by their, by, by their, um, by their foundational analysis and they um, uh, cannot show a way beyond uh, capitalism and cannot propose a, a revolutionary um, strategy that actually can overthrow capitalism. Now the last trend they criticize um, um, is what Marx and Engels call utopian socialism and it's maybe worth mentioning that they are far more sympathetic to uh, representatives of this kind of, uh, uh, of socialism than uh, towards the, the ones mentioned before. Um, they praise this revolutionary spirit that flows through thinkers like Saint-Simon, uh, Fourier and, and Robert Owen um, because they actually envisioned a society beyond capitalism, a classless society, society um, of abundance. 
Um, they painted like fantastic pictures of such societies. They even like drew sketch books of how you know a communist town uh, would look like. Um, the only problem is they had no proper way to get from here, you know, capitalism to their um, communism. And that's, I think, where Marx and Engels' understanding of communism comes into play. The utopian socialists were idealists. And like other forms of idealisms, you know, religions, ideologies, they kind of worked out a set of moral principles according to which you know, a society should be organized and then presented those ideals um, to society and uh, said, you know, follow these ideals, let's do it that way and everything uh, will be better. You know, these attempts, even where they tried and you know, they're uh, followed even today, try to kind of lead by example by forming utopian you know, communes or anti-capitalist islands in, in the vast capitalist ocean. All these attempts were doomed uh, to fail and, and, and still um, fail today. Um, what differentiates Marx and Engels' approach from these utopians um, is what you can already um, see when you just you know, open uh, the manifesto. At the beginning, it doesn't you know, start with you know, uh, moralistic bullet points like you know, exploitation is bad, that's why capitalism is bad, solidarity is good, that's why communism is good, but with an analysis of the history and the contradictions of, of capitalism. So their socialism doesn't come from like, outside of society as a system of beliefs but from critical analysis of society itself and the contradictory forces uh, within it, um, which also mean that society can't stay the way it is. When working on um, capital, um, Marx wrote in a letter to Lasalle that uh, capital, this book, would be at once an expose and at the same time a critique of the system. Um, so Marx and Engels find the necessary factors to overthrow capitalism within capitalism itself. And this is why um, Labriola called Marx and Engels' communism the imminent critique of capitalism. And that's also actually um, what Hegel uh, called uh, his scientific method. That's also where Marx and Engels get this, um, this term scientific um, from as students, but also of course as critics um, of Hegel. Because um, one thing, uh, one point of criticism that's sometimes mentioned when talking about the manifesto is that it kind of presents um, history as this, you know, uh, stairway to, to communism. Uh, you know, that uh, communism would be the, uh, the result of an automatic process of history, you know, some, some better, some, sometimes worse, but always ending up, you know, in and kind of like this, this uh, communist um, paradise. Um, so uh, the manifesto is being criticized as being some kind of like a prophecy. Uh, Marxism in general is uh, criticized as, uh, as a teleological way of thinking, you know, a te uh, teleology as the idea that there's a hidden goal um, or end uh, which everything moves towards. But the fact is that um, the communist manifesto and Marx and Engels in general are is nothing um, of that kind. Um, they say history is the history of class struggles, 
but they also say that these class struggles always um, ended um, either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. So history is not a one-way street. There is no like stairway to communism, but history is the battleground of, uh, of the classes. So this is why Marx and Engels uh, end their manifesto, not by just like folding their arms and saying, just wait you know, uh, and see, um, but they ended with a call to arms, uh, with workers of the world unite, which uh, still is probably the best quote and the most important <laughs> quote for all um, Marxists and everyone who wants to fight for a better world. Yeah, I hear you, Sebastian. Like, it's not that we can just sit and wait for socialism to happen, even though we say socialism socialism um, is the inevitable thing to happen after capitalism. You know, we've talked today about um, how horrific capitalism is and, and Marx lays the groundwork for that analysis to be applied um, even after his time to still be applied today. Um, and as Sebastian said, he, he calls the workers of the world to unite. Um, and it's not that workers of the world haven't tried to overthrow the system. There have been revolutions um, that some have been successful, like Russia, um, but many, many have not been successful. So Becky, um, you know, what do you say to that? What, 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 what was Marx talking about? What are we supposed to do um, in order to have a successful revolution to transform our society and to save our planet? Well, I think one of the main things that was missing from many of the failed attempts at revolution, like you say, wasn't the kind of will of the working class for it to be successful. But what they lacked was a revolutionary party, a leadership which could organise the working class, give kind of expression to its demands, organise it politically to take power. Um, and I think that this is one of the things that Marx and Engels spend some time discussing in the, the manifesto. And like Sebastian was saying, this isn't just kind of a theoretical book. It was a rallying call to workers everywhere to get active, to get involved, to join with uh, the communists. And I think that that's uh, one of the really important things about the about the manifesto. Um, but obviously that doesn't mean that revolutionary parties that were being built at the time, the kind of early stages um, of those and ones that have been built since haven't made uh, mistakes. But I think in, in the manifesto, they talk about the communists, uh, yeah, the communists, uh, not the communist parties, the communists as being um, in organisations or trying to build organisations which are made up of the advanced layers of the, the working class. And that means the most conscious, the most class conscious, the most committed to change. But they also make a point of saying that it's not sectarian is not separate from the working class as a whole. It aims to generalise the experience of the working class and to unite it. It has an aim of winning political power for the working class. And it's based on an understanding of the class antagonisms within society, that class struggle is the motor force of change 
and that no compromise can be made with the capitalist class, as uh, Sebastian was uh, talking about in relation to the other uh, socialists that um, are mentioned in, in the manifesto. And I think today we can look at many existing communist parties which are not revolutionary, that are Stalinist, counter-revolutionary even. And in most countries, the former social democratic parties have moved to the right and are fully capitalist parties. In some countries, there have been attempts at building new parties, but most of them are not revolutionary. And so I think ISA has an important task of building, firstly, a mass revolutionary international organization alongside many other people that haven't yet joined us, but trying to build these kind of revolutionary organizations that can lead the working class um, to, to power. And I think to be successful in that, we can learn a lot from the type of party that is outlined in the Communist Manifesto. We have to obviously learn the lessons from revolutionary parties since then, like the Bolshevik party in, in Russia. Um, but I think fundamentally, we need a party that is based on the struggle of the working class. It puts forward a program for the working class where the working class can be independent of all other classes. And that means understanding the power that the working class has, being theoretically armed with the understanding of capitalism and the need for socialism, the, the idea that capitalism won't just disappear automatically by itself, that it needs the conscious involvement of the working class to overthrow the system and to take power out of the hands of the capitalist class and put that into the hands of the majority. And the, that requires a leadership, it requires a political program that can fight for that and organise that. And you know that, that is basically yeah, the type of organisation that we need um, to win that change. This has been a great discussion. As I said in the beginning, I wish I had had this um, discussion before I went to take my exam in college because, I mean, you know, we didn't go chapter by chapter or line by line of this book, but I think the most important lessons that we can take is how to apply that today. You know, as Becky said, you know, sometimes in universities or colleges, I'm starting to speak like you, Becky, you say university in college, um, you know, they they tend to focus on the historical um, facts as opposed to um, the historical significance, you know, and how we can uh, use these lessons and apply these lessons. And I'm sure there are tons of professors that aren't trying to get their, their students to apply the lessons to the class struggle today. But we as a Marxist organization in the International Socialist Alternative, that's why we study history. That's why we read these theories is so that we can um, use these lessons to uh, apply to the struggle. Um, you know, that we're fighting today to fight for a better world. Um, Yara, I know you have been really interested in the Communist Manifesto lately. You even wrote an article recently. Yeah, I wrote an article for uh, the England, Wales and uh, Scotland paper that's coming out very soon. Um, and I I've been really enjoying to reread it because obviously, like you, Toya, I did sociology and politics at university. So I read this in probably three or four different modules 
um, and then in my masters as well. Um, but it and and obviously also in kind of the political life because I think like every Marxist needs to read this. I think we haven't mentioned it really, but. It's, it sounds like a really daunting text because it's called the Communist Manifesto and everyone's talking about it so much, but it's actually a really short and easy to understand document. Like the purpose of it was propaganda. The purpose of it was exactly this, to get it out to workers and to explain what this movement is. And like uh, Sebastian said, a call to arms for these workers to join the communist mov- movement. So it's actually super simple to understand um and really quick and easy to read um like i don't think it would take anyone more than an hour an hour and a half to read the whole thing so i will say that if you watch this and you're still interested which i'm sure you will do go and read it really easy but uh, because i read it so long ago and it's such a short text when i had to reread it to write my article i remember just how strong and powerful this text is like marx and engels take all of these issues that we talked about and say them so, you know, bluntly and so, just so well in ways that are even, I would say, spicy for today even. And I think it's it's so great. And I, I really want to hear, because obviously we asked uh, uh, people to put the uh, in the comments their favorite quotes and I would really like to hear what Becky and uh, Sebastian say about it. But I also wanted to say my favorite quote because I feel like there's so many good quotes out of this document, uh, like really so many. It was It's so difficult to pick just one. But obviously coming from Israel-Palestine, I think one of the most interesting parts of the manifesto, which we didn't really get a chance to fully go into, is the way that it debunks certain myths about socialism and kind of like the accusations that are kind of pushed on communists from the bourgeoisie. And one of these are kind of the 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 accusations about the state and about kind of nationality and how you know and something that we hear over and over and over today as well how communists aren't patriotic and we don't love this the country and we we don't respect anyone in the country which i think marx and engels give the best uh kind of retort to with and they say the working men have no country we cannot take from them what they have not got since the proletariat must first of all acquire political supremacy, must rise to be the leading class of the nation, must constitute itself the nation, it is so far itself national, though not in the bourgeois sense of the word. And I think this is really important every time we go into you know, a national conflict, because it's very difficult to come to a place that has kind of like a national question, a national conflict, and say the class is above you know, nation, the class is about above nationality. And the only way to def- to truly li- liberate people is not by, you know, dividing us into nations, but into seeing our unity as the working class. And Marx and Engels explain so well how this division is completely artificial and it works to the benefit of the ruling class, not the benefit of the working class. And as they say, the working men have no country. Because capitalism is international and the working class is international. So what we need to build is working class supremacy, not a national supremacy. But I've been blabbering on about it for so long and I can go on about it for hours. But I wanted to know, Becky, what's your favourite quote? 
Well, my favourite quote is actually from the same bit um, of the text as yours, Yara, um, but it's about private property. And it says, um, you are horrified at our intending to do away with private property. But in your existing society, private property is already done away with for nine tenths of the population. Its existence for the few is solely due to its non-existence in the hands of those nine tenths. In one word, you reproach us with intending to do away with your property. Precisely so, that is just what we in intend. And I just think it's so unapologetic. And I think that that's, um, yeah, so good because we have nothing to hide in terms of what genuine communism means and what we're actually fighting for, that we're fighting for the democratic control of society by the majority and for the majority and for an end to poverty, to war and things like that. And I think that we shouldn't be apologetic about it and Marx and Engels definitely weren't. And after reading that section, I was like, yeah, come on, sign me up, let's go. And it's true because the 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 media tries to when they talk about socialism and Marxism, they use this this argument, Becky, and it's so funny because it's like I don't I don't have shit. Like there's it, I don't have anything. So yeah, let's actually divide what we have. Um, and when you pull these quotes out like that, and you really you know break them down and think about it in today's world, it's actually quite funny. Sebastian, what's your favorite quote? I think my favorite quote comes from the last part of uh, the manifesto. The communists are, you know, part of every struggle that takes uh, place in in the present, but within the present, they represent the future of the movement. And I think that's a great uh, way of um, thinking about like the role of Marxists, you know, within social movements. You know, it's it's you know to be part of the struggles that are taking place, but at the same time showing a way uh, to the future, putting forward program, uh, uh, programs, putting forward demands that can actually lead the, um, um, these uh, movements to victory and to a successful overthrow of capitalism. Um, there's a, another uh, part uh, uh, that I uh, love uh, to quote, but it's uh, maybe a bit nerdy. Um, it's from the uh, 1882 uh, preface to the Russian uh, edition of the Communist Manifesto where Marx um, talks about a pre-capitalist uh, mode of common land ownership that was uh, still existing in, in, in Russia in the 19th century, the Obshina. And he asks uh, the rhetorical question, um, can this form of you know, communal land ownership directly uh, go into a higher form of common ownership and uh, communism, or does it need to go through, you know, the capitalist expropriation uh, process to then become, you know, uh, nationalized again? And he says the only real answer to that is the revolution in in Russia teaming up uh, with uh, the revolution, the proletarian revolution, in the rest of the world to. Um, kind of uh, get into a symbiosis and, and save those, you know, forms of communal ownership into a higher, into a higher form. And I think that's a great uh, way of, um, you know, bypassing not just the, yeah, this anarchist uh, a way of thinking that you can just directly jump into communism, but also against this Stalinist 
a um, um, stagist theory that um, everything has to go exactly the same way as it did in, in Europe. I think it's it's so brilliant um, to hear that. Obviously, I, I, I have not read that um, preface, but I think it's it's such an interesting kind of point about the manifesto. And I think we talked a lot about how it kind of relates to today, but also relates to parts of the world where capitalism is maybe not as developed. Um, but I also think that in the context of today, you know, like the, the way that the manifesto ends with the workers have nothing to lose but their chains, we have a world to win. I think it's more relevant than ever, where we look at, you know, the IPCC report that came out just a couple of weeks ago, that kind of lays out how capitalism destroyed this planet to a point that, that we are at the point of no return right now. And I think we have even less to to lose now, you know, like the, 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 the ideas that are putting the manifesto are now not just clearer, but also more correct than ever. And we don't only have a world to win now, we have a planet to win. And I think that uh, this, this text cannot be more relevant than it is now. So thank you so much, Becky. And thank you so much, Sebastian, for being here. And I'm sure this uh, kind of episode, I'm going to rewatch it again, uh, definitely next time I'm feeling uh, like uh, learning and, you know, kind of uh, sparking more uh, of my theory bone. So that, that was so great. And now it's time for the shout out of the week. And you may be wondering, Toya, why did you change your shirt? That's because we realized we had to change our shout out of the week. Do you know why? This episode marks our 50th world to win. Can you even believe it? We started this show in the middle of the pandemic as a way to stay in contact with people around the world, talk about socialist ideas at a time when we were trapped in our houses, and it just took off. And we wanna thank everyone who has subscribed to our show, who has um, shared our videos, who engages with us in the comments, and now for our new podcast listeners, we wanna thank you too. But Yara and myself personally want to give a huge shout out to the person who makes World to Win happen. And that is one of our members of the International Socialist Alternative in the United States, um, Andrew. Andrew, I cannot say enough how much he does for this show. All of the graphics, all of the sound, all of those awesome intros that we have, that's all thanks to Andrew. And so we personally wanna give our hu a huge shout out um, to Andrew. Um, thank you so much for the work that you do. And thank you all for subscribing to our show um, and on to another 50 episodes. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When we fight! When we fight! When they fight! Solidarity!